Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks Map of the Maze. I'm your producer Richard Ayliff. I've been looking forward to publishing this episode for some time. We talked to Paul Stanley who has experienced the full spectrum of the PE journey as an entrepreneur taking investment for the first time by delivering an IPO and managing exits with multiple mid-market and multinational businesses. Paul's experience turned with his belief of the importance of knowledge and continual self-improvement makes for very interesting listening. You may pick up some background noise in this episode that you no longer recognise. Well, it's the sound of people socialising in a public place as we recorded this podcast at the Dakota Hotel in Leeds before the COVID pandemic. Hopefully, whilst absorbing Paul's insights, the sound of an active restaurant in the background will take you back to some simpler times. Now, over to Sam and Paul. This evening we have Paul Stanley joining us. Paul, welcome. Thank Thanks, you. Sam. Thank you for joining us. Paul has an array of private equity experience. He's um, he started businesses, launched businesses as an entrepreneur. He's taken private equity investment as an entrepreneur. He's um, he's delivered an IPO. He has joined and helped run a. Uh, multinational private equity backed business backed by one of the largest investors in the world and he has run two mid-market private equity backed businesses as CEO and taken through an exit so he's got some phenomenal experience uh, we're delighted to have him join us I suppose it would be useful just to get a sense of uh, you know a bit more color around that experience that I've just outlined Paul in your journey into private equity first time round Sure, thanks. Yeah, in the late 90s, I'd been working in the financial sector with banks and fintech companies, HSBC and, and Link as was. And uh, it was just towards the end of that dot-com boom, and I saw people doing really interesting things and thought I could not should participate. So I threw my lot in with two of the entrepreneurial types and we created what would be fashionably called an incubator um, today and from within that incubator we started buying and turning around TMT businesses, finding good management teams with poor businesses and vice versa and turning them into something special that we could bring back to market and, and use to, to raise capital. I had the idea for a, a business based on the independent deployment of ATMs, cash machines, uh-huh. as was quite common in the US at the time, but not common in Europe. And so I worked with uh, Link and the Bank of England to get the rules changed to allow non-banks to start deploying ATMs in the UK. And we used some of our own money to get Moneybox um, out there, but quickly realized actually that the capital requirements of the business uh, were gonna be beyond um, our own means. And so we engaged Apex Partners to work with us and that was really my first experience of professional private equity. Um, and I learned an enormous amount from the people from Apex who, who joined the board and worked with us. Great experience. Quite, quite early on in your career, actually, it was... Yeah, yeah, I was still, uh, still pretty young, still just sub-30 at yeah. the time, yeah. yeah. A little bit more colour around the business that you were in with, uh, the larger international global business that you were in with... Uh, yeah, first, first data um, and KKR were, were the backers there. So I, I built up a, a range of experience in, in various areas of, of the fintech market. And at the time, first data had grown very well in the US, coming out of uh, Amex originally, um, and was trying to build an international business. Um, but their main product lines were credit card issuing and point-of-sale merchant acquiring. So they were interested in trying to figure out new revenue streams, um, new market adjacencies, 
And so they started talking to me about areas like ATMs and prepaid cards and fraud and, and loyalty management, which were all relevant to, to their space and would allow them to grow further. And so I became increasingly involved with First Data, eventually joined the team. At the time, First Data was a public company. Um, it owned Western Union, which was a real cash machine, but probably didn't get the credit it deserved from the analysts. And so the, uh, the CEO at the time, a credible guy called Rick Bequez, said, you really ought to set this private and figure out what to do with it. So first of all, we split Western Union from First Data, then delisted First Data with KKR leading um, the, the public's private, um, and then started the, the business of reassembling the company. Um, at the time, I, I joined to be involved with business development, and, and as time went on, I, I eventually ended up running uh, the international business in EMEA and APAC and all of the debit businesses worldwide. So it's a, an enormous portfolio across 93 countries in the end. It's a huge scale. Yeah, yeah, scale was uh, extraordinary, and, and also the ability of a business like that to really move markets was, was quite interesting. Um, we mm. had incredible M&A power, incredible market power, and, and the opportunity to be transformative in, in economies. So as well as the, the work we did to, to build the business for shareholder value, we were also able to engage in developing countries to bring um, technology to them, to bring digital banking to them, and to help them get control of, of inflation and, and really build confidence in the banking system in some markets. So it felt really worthwhile on a number of different levels. Mm. From there you went to RED, which is your first appointment, I suppose, as an incoming CEO to an already private equity-backed business. And then you went on to GNS after that. I suppose that sort of next burning question is that you were appointed to both of those as as a incoming CEO, replacing the CEO who had taken the business through the initial transaction. So I'm sure our members listening to this will be very interested to hear about why why did they bring you in? What led to the demise of the previous two CEOs? Yeah, they, they were both quite different situations. So um, if we think about retail decisions. Um, which had had enormous prepay fuel card business, um, as well as a, a really interesting fraud asset um, that was uh, a specialist in dealing with credit and debit card issuer fraud and real-time online e-commerce merchant fraud. Um, they then saw an opportunity to realise value by, by selling the fuel card assets, uh, and which they got an excellent price for, but they were left with this other business that um, the CEO was perhaps less passionate about and, and understood less well because he'd originally come from the oil industry and, you know, frankly, the other business was really geeky and they needed a geek to run it. Um, also, I think if a CEO stays in place a very long time, they can often run out of new ideas um, and energy and enthusiasm for the business. Mm -hmm. So I think there was just a mature realisation ar around the board table that the CEO included that it was probably time for a change. So um, that was actually a, a very gentle changing of the guard yeah. um, and allowed me to bring relevant skills and experience from the fintech market into RED and, and change the, the structure and culture and operation of the business to make it more relevant to, to the future market and uh, and retail decisions or red as, as it became known became the global market leader in fraud prevention in fintech and we took what was really the uh, the, the, the lesser of the assets um, from the original acquisition to make it uh, a sort of a global superstar a market leader and ultimately sold it for 21 times EBITDA to a large American public company who then continued to do really well with the asset 
Um, so it, it's it was a really on. happy story. Um, and, and many of my colleagues from Red um, are still there within that ACI structure doing incredibly well. And, and ACI is also doing very well with the asset. Mm-hmm. It's probably fair to say that there wasn't a, an established strategy when you walked in to create a business that ended up delivering a 20, 21 times return. Yeah, I, I don't think that's where anybody's mindset was at the time. And of course, strategic thinking historically was all about having some long-term planned strategy um, and then executing to that playbook. But increasingly, we see in more, a more modern era, more of an emergent strategy. And so we were quite agile, fleet of foot. We identified key segments and key markets where we could be strong. And we figured out what it would take to win. Um, so typically, if you're in the fraud business, you've got one fraud tool and you try to make that apply to everything. What we did at Red was figure out what the best mousetrap could possibly look like. Um, and so we had statistics, we had rules, we had neural models, and we had the world's largest fraud database. And bringing all those together gave us just enough edge in the market to be better than anybody else in terms of delivering fantastic detector false positive ratios on real-time fraud. Um, were they and, already in the business? Yeah, yeah, they were already in the business. That skill set um, was there. But, but, so the core skill set was there, but it was about really setting those people free to deliver um, creative, creatively and innovatively the best they possibly could. And so that became a, a, an extraordinary environment with some incredible people that came into the business and stayed with the business and some people we inherited who we just needed to set free to do their thing. Um, so that was much more of a cultural transition than a technology or a financial transition in mm-hmm. that case. Um, and, and the business landed really well, and uh, I, I think it's a, a real success story and a testament to the incredible hard work of that team. So a succession, really. Yeah. Your appointment was yeah. a natural succession yeah. away from a yeah. CEO who built a very successful business that ultimately was disposed of. Yeah. And then there, there was a creation of a new business and a new asset, which you clearly led yeah. strategically. And we kept that CEO around for 12 months. We, we, we asked him to, to move out to Singapore and develop a network in Asia for us to sell into because he's very enthusiastic about the Asian market and he already had a good network. So as part of the transition plan, he stayed in the business for a period um, and was incredibly gracious and helpful and, and did a great job of helping us build that commercial network out in Asia. And then at GNS, what was the... So GNS was backed by Phoenix Equity Partners and uh, and was a really interesting investment thesis. Um, Probably most people are are somewhat blind to the shipping industry. It's become an invisible industry over the years. 95% of everything arrives by sea and two ships uh, a week sink. And often there are terrible casualties and terrible losses as a result. So it's a dangerous business. And often when a ship gets into trouble, it's due to a navigational problem. Um, There's law set by the International Maritime Organization called the Safety of Lives at Sea legislation, which uh, governs the industry. And under this SOLAS legislation, the International Maritime Organization decided that by July 2018, all large vessels in certain categories had to move to digital navigation. And so this was the opportunity that GNS was established to try and address. It had been set up by two really good people, um, the former CEO of the UK Hydrographic Office and his chief operating officer, Um, and they had a strong investment thesis that they'd taken to Phoenix Equity Partners and they bought into it. It was a sort of buy and build type play where they 
bought out chart agents around the world who've been selling the traditional paper charts that the Admiralty provides uh, all over the world. Um, and th their idea was to aggregate this channel and then bring digital technology um, to replace those paper charts um, and uh, establish a, a new business in that paper to digital transition. And the investment thesis is solid. Um, the, the business ran into trouble because the operational expertise of the management team wasn't in private equity-backed businesses, on buy and builds, taking the synergistic benefit of roll-up, and the business had miscalculated the speed of transition from paper to digital, which was phenomenal, uh, and not taking account of the fact that there'd be new technology-enabled market entrants who would take market share, market share away. The big tech. The big tech, and the fact that the existing players would probably respond in an irrational manner and there'd be a race to the bottom on price. So there, there were lots of things wrong with the Very business. Very tough dynamic. It was a tough, tough market dynamic. Um, a management team that were, were struggling to get control of the operation that they'd acquired, back-end technology that didn't work properly, and software that didn't work properly. So just about everything needed to be done. Uh, and that really was about landing that business safely for the benefit of all stakeholders and stabilizing And you did. Yeah, we had to take a bunch of cost out, um, which is always really painful to do. Um, the, the least favorite part of this type of work is the, the restructuring when it affects human beings. And, and I think the moment that you don't care about that anymore is the moment you shouldn't be doing this type of work. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always sensitive to trying to mitigate the impacts on individuals and try and give all stakeholders the, the best future. Um, but you know, getting through that in a sensitive and professional manner is important for the survival of the business. And, uh, and we did that and we fixed the tech and fixed the operation. And uh, at the end of the journey, um, Phoenix, who, who'd been incredibly supportive um, all the way through the journey and uh, just transparent, honest, supportive, easy to deal with um, great people, um, just wanted the right outcome for the business and so we were able to to sell the business to a trade party somebody that we'd been working with for several years large Japanese conglomerate that happens to be in the same space and it's a really good fit and it provides continuity for the staff continuity for the suppliers and really importantly continuity for the shipping companies that depend on GNS for their for their safe navigation of the seas. Uh -huh. So you came, you came out of that last year that was a yeah November yeah, November the exit to trade so just going back to that original question, so I'm a private equity back CEO for the first time. Where do things go wrong? What would your advice be to people who may be just in businesses that aren't necessarily growing at that metric which yeah. PE very much look for? So, so I think the first thing is about alignment of interests. If you think about the way we conduct businesses in the modern era, the, the gap between people who own businesses and people who operate businesses is quite large. If you've been a, an owner, manager, a founder of a business, then you'll have a, a certain vested interest in that business and, and you'll execute it in a way that best suits you. And that might be for profit maximization, but it may be for a whole load of other motivations. Mm -hmm. Once you involve external capital, then you disrespect the fact that actually the expectation of that external capital is that you will do the best you possibly can to create value. 
and that's not to say we should have some outdated idea that the shareholder reigns supreme and everything needs to be profit maximised um, without consideration of other stakeholders. Of course, businesses need to operate within a, uh, a tight framework of um, environmental and social governance. Um, but it does mean that you need to be cognizant of the fact that it's not your money anymore. Somebody else's money is involved and therefore you need to be a responsible custodian of that investment. And the private equity company, of course, is standing in front of many um, LPs who have also invested their money and their trust mm -hmm. in you doing the right thing. So if the business has difficulties and all businesses have difficulties from time to time, I think, first of all, transparency, honesty, openness about that. Secondly, coming to the table with ideas and solutions. And thirdly, engaging your private equity partner in a constructive discussion about how you're going to work together to solve that and being open to their ideas and their experience helps that to go well. Sometimes we see owner-managers, first-time CEOs in private equity-backed businesses, who still try to run the business as a lifestyle business, still try to support all the causes they've ever supported, whether they're rational and relevant to the business or not, and, and don't really bring management discipline to the business. I think there's also a, a modern fascination with leadership over management. Management's actually quite a noble profession, um, and, and a lot of good can be done if management's done well. Mm. And I would urge all CEOs to think manager first and leader second. Um, because actually 90% of your time is going to be dealing with stuff, financial stuff, operational stuff, customer processes. stuff, processes, systems, and getting all of that right buys you the time and gives you the energy to do a great job on leadership. Yeah. If you lead with leadership, you and might no, forget the other stuff. And no management, then the yeah. thing falls over. That's right. That's right. It's this agency problem, isn't it? There, there is a problem with uh, agency theory um, as soon as you separate ownership from management and execution. Um, and of course, even in the best run companies, management will have their own views of, of how to do things. And they probably have a duty of care and need to spend time understanding the motivation of their private equity partners because that can be aligned with lots of good conversations. Yeah. And, and my experience is that private equity companies, particularly the UK private equity companies I've worked with, are actually quite benign. Um, they really want management to do a good job. Of course, it's and, a disaster if they don't. And, and they provide you with an enormously wide corridor to operate within. They understand that strategic plans and budgets represent aspirational future states rather than determined outcomes. And they're used to the idea that as stuff happens in the market, as the environment changes, you really do have to be fleet of foot and agile and pursue emergent strategies. No plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. Um, and that's absolutely true for these small to medium-sized growth businesses. Yeah. The words of wisdom really to encourage CEOs and management teams to make that leap themselves. You know, get your head around this. This isn't, the private equity investors aren't gonna lead you to this. You need to lead yourself to understanding your shareholders' mindset. Yeah. And, and I think that the very best private equity partners understand how to talk to management. I was extremely lucky in my first um, engagement with private equity. I had a, a board director, a lovely guy by the name of Neil Brown, super bright, 
um, who led the investment. And, and the investment into Moneybox looked more like venture capital than private equity. It was not really in their sweet spot. Yeah. Um, but he sat down with me right at the start and said, look, you can produce a massive board pack, an enormous strategic plan if you like, Paul. But what I'm really interested in are these six things on this one piece of paper. And that's what I'm going to want to talk to you about monthly. And if things start to vary wildly from those six things, let's talk about them. Let's not wait for a board meeting and let's understand what we're going to do about them. And I thought it was really good advice going into it because I knew immediately what was important to my private equity partner and it guided the systems, processes, controls and metrics that we put into the business. Yeah. And it was something that we could then share with the wider management team and they understood where we were heading. So it informed strategy without dictating strategy. Yeah. And I think that's what a good private equity partner does. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just moving on to you landing in uh, retail decisions and GNS, how did you approach that process of strategic planning and development? So a, a good analogy is a GP seeing a patient for the first time, you've got to diagnose what's wrong. Um, and you shouldn't come to that diagnosis with any bias. All businesses are different and all business problems are different. So my diagnostic process tends to involve a strategic review, a market review and a marketing audit. And if you go through those processes using actually very old fashioned tools, you can very quickly uncover where the issues are. Um, in these two businesses, the problems were entirely different in nature. Um, in the first business, Red, um, we had um, an innovation problem and a culture problem. Um, and so we needed to change the way people felt about themselves and the organization and the market and set them free to be creative and innovate. So um, we worked really hard on structuring the organization in a way that shortened the sort of uh, lines of communication, devolved basic decision-making responsibility to people who are more than capable of taking responsibility for decisions and prioritizing where we needed to put our investment dollars um, to get the best end result. And, you know, the, the transformation was very quick. Um, that was a classic year to fix it, year to grow, year to sell it type scenario, literally three years end to end. And, and we were exiting um, with a good return. GNS was different because we had an extraordinarily difficult market. There was nothing wrong with the quality of the people in the business. They were excellent people. The culture was very different because it was four businesses that had been brought together and not properly integrated. So each of those businesses had its own culture, partly a feature of national culture, partly macro cultures that existed within each individual business. So they all had their own styles, their own ways of seeing the world, their own ways of operating, their own tolerances for risk and acceptance of margin. And you know, if you, th if you think about having a, a Greek business, a Singapore business, a German business and a British business, all trying to do the same thing, they'll all do them differently. Mm. And what we needed to do was create a sense of GNS brand and identity globally for that business, which we which we managed to do fairly quickly um, and get everybody thinking about the GNS brand and identity in the same way while still respecting the differences in national culture, which were an essential part of 
localizing the brand for the local market. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously the business needed some cost takeout and we had to fix some technology very quickly. I was, I was lucky to have a really strong technology team, fantastic small group of in-house software developers based up in Aberdeen who really knew the business. Um, and led by uh, a super CIO, actually the guy that taught me to program um, at HSBC 25 years ago came and joined us and did a fantastic job of helping us transform that technology. What was what were those old techniques that you refer to that you used? Yeah, so you know, market reviews using BCG and Ansoff, thinking about the marketing audit in a traditional way, so just the four Ps that everybody knows, product, price, place, promotion. Using CAPFRA diagrams to think about the brand identity, how do we feel about it, how do the customers feel about it. So it's all a bit textbook and business school, and, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Particularly in the case of uh, GNS, Porter was very relevant. I mean, five forces totally described the situation we faced. Yeah. We had uh, 141 competitors jockeying for position in the middle of, of that star. We had the threat of new entrants, the threat of substitutes, a massively powerful, almost monopolistic supplier to the industry in the UK hydrographic office and very powerful buyers who could easily substitute one solution with another. It's almost a perfect storm from a strategic point of view. And at the time I picked the business up, we were trying to be all things to all people. Whereas what we needed to try and establish was some differentiation focus, again quoting Porter, mm. to get into specific segments with a highly differentiated offer. I guess my line of questioning is that you did use an approach. Now, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. every experienced CEO yeah. uses an approach, but you have great academic interest as well as practical interest. You look to develop and train yourself, don't you? I mean, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, I've never not been curious, and I think it's incumbent on all business leaders to stay curious. There's a real danger of businesses having a a lack of cognitive diversity. And one of the ways to address that is by ensuring you have diversity in your team. The other is by making sure that you take a diverse approach to your own inspiration and learning. Mm. So I can't think of any time in the last 25 years where, where I've not been in education in some way. I've always had a relationship with the university always been studying for something. I'm just in the process of finishing a, a PhD at York Business School. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it, it's really important to try to get out of the echo chamber and talk to people who are not like you, who may have really interesting new ideas mm. that you can adapt and adopt into your environment to give you just that small competitive edge. Because you make it sound very straightforward that you arrive in a business where it's under severe market pressures from every angle but yet you find a gap for it to exploit itself into and grow and ultimately realize an exit how long did it take you to to work through that process of understanding where the business was and identifying where it needed to go using the academic thinking and processes that you have adopted over the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, it sounds rather formulaic, but I typically start with a 100-day plan, and, and the most important thing is the first month. Um, by the end of the first month, you need to figure out who needs to be on the bus, in which seats, you know, put the square pegs in the square holes and the round, round pegs in the round holes, and have an executable strategy that people are aligned behind and believe in, but be prepared to learn and be agile and not stick to it steadfastly if market conditions tell you that you're wrong. You also need to accept every day you might be wrong about something. 
and be prepared to deal with that. Mm. Tell us a bit more how you went about fixing the culture in, in both Red. So lots of conversations is the place to start. Uh, I, I think people usually know what the answer is if you give them a chance to talk. Um, a lot of people within businesses, particularly um, further down the hierarchy in operational or engineering type roles, tend to come across as a little introverted because they don't have the confidence to address their concerns to a wider group or to management. So you need to create forums where they will be comfortable. So I, I picked up a technique from HSBC many years ago called these sevens lunches, where you randomly draw um, a, a list of names together from all over the organization and take them for an informal lunch and let them talk about what they want to talk about. Everyone's and, included. Everyone's included. Um, and uh, actually it's really important for, for managers to listen to people more than they talk. And what I would do at those lunches is facilitate um, and take notes. And if they raise things that we could do stuff about, we'd minute it and we'd tell the entire company we'd go do it. And that might be that there's never any semi-skimmed milk in the fridge or there's a funny smell in the toilets, which we had in one of the buildings. But it could also be really strategically or operationally important things. And what you're looking for are those golden nuggets of insight that nobody in the C-suite will ever know. Nobody even in the management team will ever know. Only the person doing the job knows. And driving these businesses to improvement is all about tiny incremental gains, the 1%, but every day. Um, and that's, that's how you get it. You capture the, the genius and the insight and the experience of people in the entire organization and give them a voice. And when they see you typing up what they've said, sharing it with the entire company, ensuring that actions are followed through and what they've said at that lunch becomes a reality quickly, then their confidence grows and they share ever more. And so you can do that in small groups. I think one-to-ones are really important as well. If you're involved in coaching, performance management, sitting down with individuals and trying to understand really what makes them tick and how to communicate with them and how to get them on side, rather than just having one approach for everybody. It makes an enormous difference. Mm. Um, and, and you know our communication together is unique to how you and I relate. It's the same with everybody else. Mm. So standing up in front of a large group and outlining your vision of the future is part of what you do, but it's the smallest part of what you do. The biggest part of what you do is the very personal one-to-one -one communication all the time, every day, which is why I don't particularly lock myself in a way in an office and I wander around a lot in my businesses chatting to people. Should we uh, conclude a podcast by talking about your experience of selling and exiting, of which you've done a fair amount? You've, sure. uh, we alluded to it earlier, you've listed a business, your business, uh, you've uh, done trade exits and secondary. So what's your preferred? Very simple question. So I actually like a nice clean trade sale. Um, and I like to be able to leave relatively quickly because I don't like to stand and watch the ugly guy kiss my baby. So I, I think that's, uh, that's my own preferred exit. Other people feel differently for their own reasons. I think as you approach the exit, it's important to be clear in your own mind as to why you are exiting. So are you exiting because your capital partner requires it and the maximum return um, can be delivered through trade? Are you exiting because the business requires new capital to do new things that the existing capital partner isn't willing to do or has no appetite for, or it just doesn't fit their plan? In which case you may roll the dice again with somebody else. 
Um, or you may choose to IPO because that may be a great way to get the money you need to, to develop the business. Mm-hmm. I don't think IPOs are a good way for founders to realize their investment because often the, the belief in the stock is a belief in the individuals who've built the stock. Yeah. Um, so I think if you want an exit, a true exit, then you probably need a trade sale. If you think there's still value to be generated in the business, um, then rather than going to the public domain, continuing with a new private equity company is a great idea because it gives you the opportunity to roll the dice again with new money and perhaps take it to where you think it can get to um, to maximise value for everybody involved and gives the first capital partners the return they deserve for, for backing you in an earlier stage. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's one size fits all. I think you just be clear on your own motivation and what's right for the business. Mm. How long did you stay on um, as CEO in your business when you post-IPO, Moneybox? Uh, well, I, I was only there for about six months because we had the opportunity to um, merge with another similar player who had also come to market about the same time. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the market was going through a tough period as well. We probably all came to market at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, um, and that's uh, that's definitely a learning experience. But uh, nonetheless, it, it works out well for everybody in the end. Yeah, six months is probably just about enough for you. Yeah, it? it was. It was really, and and you know, I, I'm quite happy to to work in public companies and have done so on a number of occasions. But as a CEO, you need to understand the difference between being private equity backed and being public. As the CEO of a public company, you'll spend an enormous amount of time managing market sentiment and talking to analysts and thinking about how what you're doing translates into messages for the market that are easily understood and underpin um, shareholder value. As a private equity-backed CEO, you're actually working with your hands in the engine uh, much more, much more on the front line, trying to fix things, trying to build things, trying to make relationships work. And whilst as a CEO you need to delegate in both environments, the nature of the delegation is very different. Mm. You said something earlier about um, self-awareness in an exit process. Yeah, I mean, there's this idea that that business leaders are often not very self-aware. Actually, I'm not sure that's true. Um, Certainly the ones I've interviewed in my research um, seem incredibly self-aware. They're very aware of their strengths and weaknesses. They're very aware of the strengths and weaknesses of the people around them and they're very aware of the reality of the market conditions that they face and and the best of these business leaders reflect on their own performance almost daily Hmm. because they realize that to improve the organization they also have to constantly improve themselves and and if you don't think you can then that's a good time to exit yourself yeah yeah because it, it may well be that it's beyond your experience beyond your imagination you've run out of creative energy Um, It just needs a facelift. There's all kinds of reasons why a CEO should think about succession planning and think about the right time to move on. And an exit sometimes a good time to think about that. Mm. You're going to be part of the company's journey, but rarely the entire journey for the company. And I think a a good, mature, capable CEO is is aware of that and and happy to deal with it and and has a, a horizon that they're working to and therefore puts in place a strong team around them that can survive them. Succession planning is important for many things, not least, you know, all all of us are uh, vulnerable human beings and anything could happen to anybody at any time. But it's also important to ensuring continuity beyond the CEO's tenure. 
um, so that there are people there who can bring fresh ideas but within a familiar framework so you get evolution rather than revolution in the business. Mm. Tell us about the PhD then, because uh, you, you're in the final phases of that now. I you? am, yeah, just uh, finishing the, the writing up of it and getting ready for the big, uh, the big day. Um, so I have worked in a lot of small to medium-sized private equity-backed technology-enabled businesses where I think innovation has been really important to the success and eventual value of those businesses. And what I really wanted to understand was what other CEOs did to influence the creative climate and innovation agenda of software engineers in those businesses and how software engineers felt about it. Um, because I don't think many people had ever asked the engineers how they felt. Um, and so I was lucky knowing so many private equity companies and so many technology companies to get incredible access. It's actually one of the big challenges of any research is just getting access. But uh, a huge number of CEOs and their software engineers were really kind and generous with their time. How many of you um, met? How many of you? So I've spoken to uh, actually well over 20 companies plus uh, a large number of private equity companies that back them to see how they feel and recorded hours and hours of narrative which I've painfully transcribed myself and then run a, a grounded theory process um, to try and it's unpick... A grounded theory process. So this is a social sciences research technique that's often used in business schools to try to unpick the codes and themes that exist within this narrative metadata, this spoken um, expression of our, our intersubjective experiences. Um, and then try to compare and contrast how the business leaders feel and how the engineers feel and how the private equity companies feel. And it's quite interesting because the motivations are far from aligned. Um, it, a, a lot of CEOs um, worry intensely about cash flow because they know that cash is the, the lifeblood of the business that carries the oxygen to every part. Um, and even when the business has become quite successful um, and is generating cash, they still feel the same way and it still occupies a lot of their time and attention. So you find CEOs in these small to medium sized businesses um, try to find product market fit for their first and best idea and then are happy to keep recycling that idea with as many customers as possible whilst managing financial stakeholders to ensure that the business has um, sufficient liquidity to grow at a predefined pace. Um, they don't necessarily welcome great new ideas. So that's not real innovation, is it? They're, they're, well, it's an innovation of a type, There's different types of innovation. So, you know, we can define innovation in lots of different ways, and it has been. But um, I think what they're interested in is incremental, um, exploitative innovation, which is just improving products and processes, feature functionality and benefits for the customer. They're not necessarily generally interested in looking at something that's disruptive, um, or explorative because they don't feel they have the financial power or wherewithal or resources or even intellectual capacity to take those things on. Or time. Yeah, or private time. Equity yeah exactly. And, and the, the private equity investors have a time horizon. So they'll often say, that's a great idea, but that's venture capital, it's not private equity. Um, so let somebody else do it. Um, the software engineers are fascinating. I've got an enormous respect for the software engineering community. Um, in this country, which I'm most familiar with, but also in other countries where I've worked. Um, software engineers tend to be intellectually curious, very hardworking, they like to solve problems. Um, writing software itself is a creative act. 
Um, and every algorithm that you write to solve a problem represents a small step in innovation. Yeah. And so they actually love innovation and are more inclined to be innovative than the environment that surrounds them. Um, and so there's a slight misalignment between the engineers, the CEOs, and the private equity companies who all want the best for the company. No, nobody's proceeding with bad intent, but they all have a slightly different way of looking at it. Um, and whilst the engineers may want to be incredibly innovative and bring value to their business that way, the contradiction is actually they quite like things to stay the same around them. They like the same office, the same um, organisational culture, and actually growth can disrupt that culture for them and make them uncomfortable. Mm. Um, we also see engineers who have uh, incredibly portable skills um, actually quite like staying where they are often, providing they're given new toys to play with and, and new opportunities and challenges to solve. Um, that's much more important to them, providing the financial aspects of their job meet all the hygiene factors. Um, so motivation for the engineers is often driven through project complexity, intellectual curiosity, and the opportunity to feel that they're contributing to something that's really valuable. So you found, you found a lack of alignment between the three core parties in these software businesses. How, how can you fix that alignment in a short period of time when private equity is invested? What, what I've found in the businesses I've run is if you've got a clearly stated innovation agenda and participation in creating the roadmap that includes all stakeholders, you can generate alignment. Often businesses don't have a process in place, particularly businesses of this size, the small to medium size software enterprises, often don't have a process in place to bring that aligned roadmap together. Um, and so people are off doing their own thing. What do you think should be done then? I mean, what's your, what would your advice be to... I think, I think there's a number of to things. shareholders, I suppose. I, I, I think, first of all, there's some policy issues that go back to government. Government in the UK in particular believes that the creative industries are incredibly important to the growth of the economy. And, of course, they're right. These small to medium-sized enterprises are the largest employers yeah. in the country, much more massive than any of the big brands. There's more people employed uh, in software engineering in the UK in small to medium-sized enterprises than are employed by any of the large supermarkets. Um, so they're really important businesses and they drive growth and they do important things. Um, the software they write underpins our daily lives. Um, and so I think it's important that government has policies in place that provide the right level of support um, through the right types of tax incentives, the right types of training schemes, um, the right types of networking events and so on. And I know that governments of all colour um, and on the political spectrum talk about this stuff. But actually to get down to effective policies requires a lot more work, a lot more investment, but the return will be good. Um, I think educational institutions need to think about the product that they're turning out into the market. Um, I think there are some universities who um, produce incredibly capable commercial software engineers who understand what it is they're going out into the world to do um, at a technical level and also commercial level. Others may be more abstract and treat it as true computer science rather than applied. And I think it's important to know what you're hiring as a, as a business that engages support in that way. In, in GNS, we had um, a wonderful software team based in Aberdeen, right on the doorstep of Robert Gordon University, that produces software engineers with really practical skills. And they can come into the firm on day one and start coding and 
you know, it's, it's a real asset. Um, so we were lucky. And I, I think having those relationships with, with universities is very important for the businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it helps if even if the CEO's not from a technical background, they gain a strong technical under, understanding of the environment that they're leading and build affinity and empathy with the engineering team um, so that they can understand what motivates them how they work and direct that creative energy within a corridor that's acceptable to the investors. Um, And I think from the private equity company's point of view, taking the time maybe quarterly to get off site, not just with the CEO and the CFO, but talk to other stakeholders in the business, particularly CIOs and uh, chief architects about where the business is going and what's important for value creation can help as well. So not necessarily being hands-on, but just being more involved and more aware and helping management set a strategic agenda for innovation in software that, that suits everybody's end objectives. Fascinating. Fabulous. And we have quite a few software, private equity about software CEOs within our community. And I'm sure if they're listening to this, they might be thinking, I would love to have a com- coffee with Paul. So I'm always uh, happy to have a coffee. If you are and you'd like to do that, then reach out to us at Pep Talks and we'll connect you. But Paul, that's been fascinating. Um, really, really interesting. We've got to go off to dinner now, but I think we could sit here and talk for a lot longer, couldn't we? Great. Thanks very much. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.